I'm privileged to be the preaching pastor here and uh, to get to, to preach on this Resurrection Sunday. Christ is risen. Amen? Amen. Today I want to preach to you from Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. If you want to grab your Bibles with me and turn there, I want to begin by reading our passage and then we'll dive into it together. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of our Lord. Amen. Look with me at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. First consider with me the love that God the Father has for God the Son. His beloved Son. In the Gospel of Matthew we read these words from Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3.17, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. All through Scripture we see God the Father's beautiful affection and cherished love for God the Son. One of the helpful tools that we can use as we study God's Word is called the principle of first mention. Often the first place something is mentioned gives us a base to understand it elsewhere in Scripture. Did you know that the first mention of the word love is found, that is found in the entire Bible is found in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. Here God is giving instructions to Abraham about talking, taking his son Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him. To show his faith, his trust in God. Genesis 2, verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Understand that Abraham and his wife were not able to have kids for almost a lifetime. They are very old in age. And in God's perfect plan, he gives them a son, an heir. Not an ordinary son, but one through whom many generations would come after Abraham. Abraham's love for Isaac was so deep. As the generations went by, the Jewish people, as considering 
love would often think of a father's love for his son, especially regarding the potent love that Abraham had for Isaac. With this in mind, consider God the Father's eternal and complete love for God the Son, Jesus Christ. To begin to understand how deep the Father's love is for us, we have to begin to know how deep and powerful and unhindered the love God has for His only begotten Son, Jesus. So when it says, He who did not spare His own Son, Romans 8.32, you have to see the depth of the love on display here. To see the eternal and unfathomable love of God the Father for God the Son. And yet, God did not spare him. He sent him to suffer and die. Why? For his eternal glory and our eternal redemption. This is the message of the cross, church. This is what we remembered and celebrated just two days ago on Good Friday, that Christ died in our place. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, active enemies of him, Christ died for us. While we deserve God's righteous wrath, as our good and right judgment on our sin, he sent Jesus to take on flesh. He would keep the law perfectly, be without sin in every way, and then sacrificially offer himself up in our place. Jesus is the only one who could take on our deserved wrath and condemnation and put on us his righteousness and victory. Only in the substitutional atonement of Jesus on the cross in our place can we be justified and forgiven by the Holy God. Hear me clearly today. We can't stand in His holy presence on our merit alone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 We have all earned, earned eternal death because of our sin. That's Romans 6.23. But the good news of Jesus' redeeming work on our behalf is also in Romans 6.23. For it says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God. Look with me at the next part of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the amazing grace of God that we sang about moments ago. That he would send what is holy and worthy To save people who are wicked and undeserving, not worthy. Not worthy of any good grace that God would give. 
But he did. He did not spare his own son, but instead he gave him up for us all. Wow. See the power of that. Let that sink in. In a world where we are guilty of thinking too highly of ourselves, a true marker of our sin at work is to think that we are better or more worthy than we are. But we must see that no one is worthy of God's grace. None of our excuses for our sin will have any weight before God. You might get away with giving excuses to other people, your boss, your parents, your friends. But, but you cannot excuse yourself before God. The Apostle Paul wrote that on the day of judgment in Romans 3.19, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. When the judge takes the bench, there will not be a single protest. In our current day, man is in love with this idea of human rights. Uh, and, and most people wrongly assume this, that, that God owes us something, something good. Salvation, or at least a chance to salvation. God owes sinful man just one thing. He owes unrepentant sinful man his righteous and eternal wrath. Please, please understand, God is not obligated to be gracious to us. If he was, then grace is no longer grace. Grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. To say that he's obligated or to say we've done anything to deserve it, it is no longer grace. Consider this with me. To add anything to, to grace is to deny grace altogether. It is upon this understanding that we see the fact that God saves any is truly amazing grace. So then who is John referring to when he says, us all? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Well, as we consider the context of Romans chapter 8, maybe even chapter 9, we see clearly that it's not speaking of every person in the entire world for whom God sent his only son to die in their place that they would be saved, as in somehow God tried but didn't accomplish all that he wanted to. No, it is God's elect. That's who the us all is. How do I know that? Well, look at the next verse, verse 33. God's elect. Those whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, a people he chose we see that in verse 29. If we go to the next chapter in Romans 9.15, it is the elect that Paul speaks of, of whom God declares, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Declaring, I'm not obligated to anybody. 
When we rightly see our sin before the holiness of God, we are amazed that God would save any and overwhelmed by his grace for those those whom he would choose to save. It is all whom God gives eyes to see and ears to hear this gospel who believe in and trust in the one the gospel proclaims. Again, I want this to really sink in today. God, by his amazing grace, freely chooses to not condemn all as we have rightly earned in our sin his wrath. But instead he gives up his beloved son so that all that he has chosen will be saved and know his eternal love. See with me today that the love of God is not just for the Holy Son or the Holy Spirit. It is also for His chosen people. A people, His Word, the Bible says, will be from every tribe and tongue and nation. A grossly undeserving people will be His beloved because of His sacrificial work through God the Son on the cross and the resurrection. Church, when you consider if you are loved or not, something we may contemplate often, I would encourage you not to first consider the love of fellow mankind, for our love for each other is altogether too inconsistent because of sin, because of selfishness. No, no, first and foremost, consider the love that the holy God has for you. A love that is proven in the sacrifice of his one and only spotless son. For those whom he would give eyes to hear and ears to hear, and eyes to see and ears to hear that they would place their faith in Jesus alone and be saved. They are the recipients of his amazing love. The love of God on his redeemed people is not arbitrary, it's it's active, It, it accomplishes so much. And that's what Paul gives us next in our passage. Look with me at the next part of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This shows us, number one, The redeemed, the saved, know the love of God in his gracious provision and abundant blessings. Uh, What does it mean that God will give his redeemed, his beloved, all things? Does it mean that he now becomes like a genie in a lamp and we kind of run to him and just say, here's what I wish? He said, you're going to give me all things, right? Well, uh, sweet Ferrari would be really fun today. It's a nice day out and... No. Praise God he doesn't. We'd be a bunch of messed up people. (laughs) It means he will surely provide for us all that we need to fulfill his perfect will. It means that in Christ we are more than blessed. Oh, church, I pray you see how blessed you are in Christ. The Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 16 says this, For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. 
from the fullness of grace, we have all received one blessing after another. We, the redeemed, have received, so we're possessors of, so many blessings. Dump truck loads of blessings. We, we couldn't even name them all. That's how blessed we are in Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you know how blessed you are, church? Because of life in Christ? In Christ we have more than we could ever dare to dream of. God is a gracious giver to his people. The second thing we see here is the redeemed know the love of God and the fact that there is no condemnation for us. In verse 34, Paul asks, Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn you, church? What he means by this is, who's going to bring condemnation and judgment on you when the judge and ruler of all things has already provided your pardon in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Paul famously opens this chapter with this very declaration. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? We're pardoned. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. We belong to God. Church, rejoice in the fact that you are no longer under his condemnation. Think about that. Consider Paul's words to the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15. And you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Church, see the triumph of Jesus in the resurrection of Jesus. Picture the resurrected Jesus like a victorious soldier after a long and bloodied battle has defeated his foe and returned home to reign and to rule. Amen? This leads us to to what Paul says next in verse 34. The redeemed know the love of God and that we have a great and perfect intercessor. Romans 8.34 Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Where is Jesus today? Is he dead in the grave? No. I mean, one of my favorite evidences of the resurrection, in a a pragmatic way, is the fact that the tomb of Christ was not enshrined. I mean, consider that with me for a moment. This is significant because 
Our practice, mankind's practice, is to memorialize and remember someone when they die. That's why we have a funeral service. That's why we light candles, sing songs, tell stories. Remember that one who passed away. We get on planes to travel across the nation or even the globe to go be near the body that lies in the grave. To return and visit that place. And understand, in the day of Jesus, this was a normal practice. There, there was no less than 50 tombs of holy, important men who had been memorialized and enshrined. But Jesus doesn't have this place of memorial. There is no place to see his tomb and remember him, the the greatest man who ever lived, the most influential figure in all of human history, didn't have a funeral. Why? Because he wasn't there. Amen? If Jesus' legacy ended with his burial... The people who once followed him passionately would have slowly and surely hung up their hat at his dead guy tomb. We still would today. It'd be done. It'd be game over. He's dead. Everything he promised to be is over. It would have been marked to this day as one of the most important tombs where one of the greatest men who ever lived was buried. Because that's where it would have ended. But it didn't end there. Amen? Because up from the grave he arose. So I ask you again today, where is Jesus today? Paul says right here in verse 34, it's important for us, church, to know where is the resurrected Christ today? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Consider with me the active and ongoing work of Jesus Christ in his interceding for us every moment of every day. I want us to see the love of Jesus in his ongoing work in this important ministry. We have no regular access to God the Father without the intercession of God the Son. He's manning the line every moment of every day. The reason why your prayers get through, the reason why you remain in God's good graces, the reason why you are alive to this very moment is the active, sustaining, interceding, perfect work of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Because He's not dead. Because it didn't end. Because he reigns and rules and continues for his perfect will and our eternal good. This is the love of God for you today in the ongoing work of the resurrected son. One of the big things that we can get caught up worrying about is how secure are things that we've come to love and enjoy in this life. In a world where nothing is certain and everything is so temporary, we can really question the endurance and security. When it comes to the love of God for us, our flesh can get caught up in worrying and stressing about whether or not it's secure. 
If it wasn't, Paul wouldn't have written so precisely about this very point. I want you to really lean in and hear what he is saying in these next verses. I want you to see what the victory of Christ over the grave means for us. What the faithfulness and power of God means for our enduring in his love. And even the worst of times and the greatest of losses. Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There, there it is. Will this love endure? Will, will it continue? Can I be separated from it? If God has provided his perfect and holy son to be our atoning sacrifice, and if God raised him from the dead in victory over death to rule and reign, if Satan and his fallen angelic rulers have been defeated and are all under God's holy rule and reign, who is going to separate us from God's love? This is Paul's cry from the rooftops for his redeemed brothers and sisters. It's, it's the cry for us today. Who is going to separate you from the love of Christ? Church, you need to see how secure you are in Christ's love, not because of your performance or because of anything else, but only because of God. It really drives home the point as Paul starts to list great powers, trials, hardships, life-changing events in the next part of the text. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Understand, these are not small things. These are not little things. These are huge things. These are weighty, hard, incredibly difficult things. He's talking about real things that happen to real Christians every day. Think about these with me just for a moment. The sword that cuts off the head or pierces your heart. In other words, shall death, physical death, separate us from the love of God? No. And as secure as we may feel in our modern setting and this place to gather this morning, there are many who will, who will die because of their faith. Their heads will be cut off. They will be tortured and killed, but not separated from the love of Christ. Amen? What about the peril, the danger or peril that sweeps away your spouse or loved one and leaves you alone? What, what about the, the nakedness that shames you in captivity of your abuser or in the extreme poverty of your circumstances? What about the famine that leaves you and your children 
with nothing but bones draped with skin. Famine, not hungry, not I missed a meal. Will famine, will watching everyone I know and love wither away, separate me from the love of Christ? What about persecution that blocks all of your professional advances? Or burns down your house? Or imprisons you? What about distress or calamity that leaves you paraplegic? Or takes away your life savings? What about tribulation that wrings your soul of every drop of endurance to be squeezed out of it. He's saying none of these things will separate you from God's love. Amen? Think about that. And then he quotes Psalm 44, 22 in Romans 8, 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This means for the sake of God, for his pure worship, the saints were frequently put to death or exposed to persecutions of men, which often led to death. They were liable to death all day long, every day. They were like sheep to be slaughtered. But you say, but isn't that what Jesus did on Friday? He was the spotless lamb. He was the lamb led to slaughter. We read Isaiah 53. Isn't that what he did for us? Didn't he do that so I don't have to? No. No, that, that, that's the manipulation of the prosperity gospel in a modern church movement of Christian ease that doesn't think about the gospel or the things of the scriptures clearly or rightly. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Hear this clearly. Jesus died to save us from hell, but not to save us from the cross. Christ's victory over death in his resurrection is not so we won't experience physical death or hardship. If that's what you think the gospel is, you you are destined to, to be broken, to break down in your faith along the way, for that is not the gospel. No, no, every one of us will physically die. I've said it before, it's like this unavoidable statistic that one out of one people will physically die. No, 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 the death we will be saved from is spiritual death. It's eternal death. It's way bigger than physical death. And you might say, man, I, I, but you, you didn't see my loved one whose death was miserable. And I just say back to you, maybe you didn't see the death of my loved one. My mom who died over eight and a half years from a terrible disease of Alzheimer's. We watched her wither away. She was unrecognizable in the last two years of her life, mumbling and walking the halls.
you need to have a bigger view of eternity. Because eight and a half years is nothing compared to eternity. That's the spiritual death that we're saved from in Christ. To the point where the saints say, if I suffer for a lifetime, to have God, to be in his glory forever, I choose that. Because that's the one who gets what it is to have the prize. God himself. Have joy forevermore in his holy presence. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For those who belong to Christ, our physical death is not our end. Therefore, death loses its sting. The point of Paul's words here is that the massive power and wisdom and love of God for his people does not promise escape from all these things we just talked about. The power and love and wisdom of God promises triumph in these things. Amen? It's the rally cry of the resurrection of Jesus. Not that we will struggle no more, but that as we struggle, as we bleed, as we die, we do so knowing We are secure in the love and victory of Jesus. How sweet it is. How truly good news it is. The resurrection and ongoing intercession of Jesus on our behalf, on behalf of God's redeemed, is meant to be to us such a deep, firm, unshakable, God-wrought, blood-bought security in His all-conquering love that even these extreme kinds of suffering We will not curse him or forsake him or reproach him, but trust him and hold fast to him and be satisfied with him when all else is taken away. As the famous hymn says, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Look with me as Paul doubles down to say this in verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In the midst of all these deep and painful and real world hardships, we're not just conquerors. We're not just victorious. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Hear these words, church. Let them change your life and your view of what you're doing and experiencing. Let them change your view of who God is and how he's at work. See, a conqueror has his enemies lying subdued at his feet. He's conquered them. He's conquered them. So your sufferings are conquered. They're defeated. Distress, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, persecution. He's saying they're conquered in Christ. In Christ's victory on our behalf, in his great love for us, they're conquered at our feet. We'll still go through them, but they don't have the final say. They don't own our heart and our joy and our identity. No, no, they're conquered. Christ is risen from the grave. 
Amen. No, no, he says we are more than conquerors. Meaning they're not just in chains at our feet. No, no, in Christ, in Christ these things are actually serving us, Scripture says. That means our tribulation, our distress, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our danger, the swords against us, as painful as they are, as tearful as they are, they're serving us in Christ. God is working them all together for our good, Scripture says. The good that God works in and through our suffering is the foundation of our joy. It isn't the circumstance, hear me. The circumstance of our suffering are full of tears. In Christ, we know a lasting love and an enduring joy in our suffering. This doesn't mean that when we're in the thick of it, that there's not tears. There's tears. Plenty of tears. The Bible says, speaking of Jesus, Isaiah 53.3, that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was perfect. And there was tears. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that Paul, he was sorrowful, tears, yet always rejoicing. No, there will be tears. But God wants us to rejoice and know his abounding love. You must see it with me today. God doesn't do that with your circumstances. He does it with himself. He does it with the gospel. He does it in and through your circumstances. Because we, we struggle with this. Because we do, Paul essentially says, says it for his listeners almost again in these most famous words of verse 38 and 39. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah. Amen. Let me read it again. <laughs> Romans eight thirty-eight and 39. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to see the finished work of Jesus this morning. The celebratory conclusion of the resurrected Christ. Church, nothing can separate you from the love of God in the power and victory of Jesus Christ. Church, this is the confidence, the security, and the provisions of the gospel at work in your life in the resurrected Jesus Christ. This is why we endure these days, and days much worse, for the glory of God. None of this is possible if Christ remains in the tomb. His resurrection is our victory. Only because he is risen do we have the assurance, the blessed assurance, the confidence 
and the ability to now walk in godliness and make much of his holy name. Now I realize that on Easter Sunday, there are many of you who are here, and I'm thankful you are, who are not plugged in to a local church. You're not actively waking every day, seeking his word to, and seeking to obey his commands. You're not inviting mature brothers and Christ, uh, sisters into your life to hold you accountable to Christ, to keep your affections centered on him. You're not, you're not fighting your sin, pursuing righteousness. You might simply be clinging or hanging your hat on a prayer you said back in the day. Or a season of your life where you feel like, man, I serve so much. I kind of feel like I put in my time. Can I say because I love you? that If, if you're claiming Jesus but you're not actively a part of the local church, you're in sin. His command is to be a part of his body and to do that work together with others. For you to somehow claim your faith in God and do it on your own terms is to do something that's different than what he's called you to do. And I just pray that with, with again, all love for you, you would hear me love you to call you to that, that you would repent of it. I'm glad you're here. The things I just spoke of are potentially signs that you're not truly trusting Jesus. You're kind of saying, I have the Lord Jesus, but I'm also kind of still Lord of my own life because I still just want to do it my own way. To those God has given saving faith, we trust our entire life to Jesus. He reigns on high as our king, and it's my joy to wake up every day and serve him in all the ways he has called me to and is growing me and maturing me in. He's my authority. He is my greatest love, and therefore I love his church and I love the work of his people, and I'm joyfully a part of that. I'm not making my own way or thinking, I'll get to it later. Those who truly trust in Jesus have a hunger for his word. A fight for these things in them. I want you to see today that this is the difference between loving Jesus as Savior, meaning he gets you out of hell, what he did on Friday night, and, and loving him and trusting him as Lord, who is alive, who rose to reign as a result of Resurrection Day. See, fr Friday is about being saved. Sunday is about him being Lord of your life and reigning over your life and serving him with your days and enduring those trials and having an active part of the local body and disciple-making and mission-sending. 
Today is Sunday. And it's my explicit command to not beat around the bush, to not give you what you want to hear. I'm not loving you if I do that. That's like us giving our one-year-old Kool-Aid all day because that's all they want. Right? We're not loving them and doing that. No, no, my, my, my command is to give you the life-changing truth. And that my prayer has been that God would, would love you so much today that he would, he would kind of wreck you. That if your hope was, I'm going to go to church today, I'm going to try to get through this unscathed, then, then maybe you went through it and didn't meet the all-powerful God. No, no, no. If you meet the all-powerful God, it should wreck you. And so I just ask you, is Jesus your Savior and Lord? If he is, your life will be a life of resurrection in Christ according to his word. I didn't say perfection. I said resurrection. It will be a daily walk of repentance and trusting in Jesus of submitting to those who God has put around you as word, elders, father, husband, those he's put over you in this world, to honor him and let the gospel be known in these areas of life and work. It will mean growing in the church and growing in the word. It will mean serving others and giving away your temporary treasures for eternal ones. For those of you who have drifted away, who have made secondary the things of God, I can think of no better day for you to go to God in prayer and confess these things and repent. To Him. To turn to Him. And to return to the church and to climb into His Word and to serve Him the rest of your days according to what He's called you to. If Jesus is not your Savior and Lord... The Bible says, confess your sin and trust your life to Jesus and be saved. I pray you would this morning. I pray you would see the beauty of the gospel that there's nothing in you that needs to perform. It's, it's a yielding to the performance of another, to Jesus. It's setting down the reins of being in charge of your own life and trusting them to him to lead and love you. And be forever changed, to be spiritually awakened, reborn, and have that spiritual life with God that will go forever. Why is the resurrection of Jesus good news? Because Christ secured our victory over sin and death. Which means we are risen from the enslavement of our sin to enjoy the greatest prize we could ever know, God himself. Who before that salvation, we were enemies of him. We were separated from him. See, heaven is not the primary prize It's secondary, and it is a distant second. No, no, God is the prize. Heaven is is about God and his glory and his greatness and his majesty and his love. God is the prize of our salvation, the reason why the good news is so good. Jesus said in John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, one out of one, yet shall he live. Amen? Church, we will suffer, and one day we will die physically. 
but we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen? And Jesus' victory in resurrection will be our victory in resurrection. Romans 8, 31. Yeah, some of you noticed. I read 31 through 39, and we started with 32, because this is a sweet finish. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us, church? See the love of God for you. See the security of His power. See the newness of life you have with Him. He is risen. Oh, how He loves us. Praise the name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time together this morning in Your Holy Word. What a blessing it is to us to get to study it week in and week out and, and, and trust you and, and know you and be convicted by it that we would be faithful to it and not to our own agenda, but the preaching and the hearing and the doing of the word of God. I thank you, Lord, for this, for this place and these people, the loved ones who invited and the people who you ordained would be here today to hear these words preached your word. I thank you for Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And I thank you for the assurance, the blessed assurance that we have, the confidence we have that we are loved by God in Christ Jesus, that we will finish with him and we will enjoy him forever despite what we face, despite how how miserable it gets or how hard it goes in these temporary days, we, we long for another kingdom. And we live these days for the glory of you, God. The name of Jesus would be on our tongues. And we'd worship you and grow in you. Exalt your holy name. Hear us as we worship you now. As we worship you, God. In Jesus' name we pray.